Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, and we're going to continue our series that we began uh, just last week in uh, this book of the, the Scriptures. And I, I will mention that if you happen to be absent uh, last week, I don't always promote my own sermons, but I would encourage you to listen to the message from last Sunday simply because we covered a lot of introductory material uh, that, that would help you to get geared up to really walk through this whole uh, series that we're going to go through in the next 10 or 11 weeks or so. Uh, in particular, I highlighted some themes because one of the things we're going to realize as we walk through this book, I mentioned last week, is that although we're separated from the people and judges by time, by geography, and by culture, and that creates a little bit of a hurdle we have to get over, what we're going to be amazed by is to find that some of the key themes taken from this book of Judges about our propensity to wander away and yet God's intervention to come and rescue us, about the fact that God's sovereign over all things, even over some things that are chaotic, about the consequences that we can bring upon ourselves from just trying to live as if there is no God. All of those kind of themes are really relevant to our lives today. And so I'd love for you to listen to that message here a little bit about that. We also talked a bit last week and tried to sort of clear the air on this idea of the holy war. The fact that there's a good bit of violence uh, in various places in the, the Old Testament, but certainly in the book of Judges, that, that we saw God had commanded for a specific time in a specific place, but it's still a tough thing to swallow. And we said that it's, it's so difficult for some folks that even some people have said, I, I, I don't really want to have anything to do with the Christian faith or the message of the, the Bible because of this difficult uh, issue to address. And we said that's a little bit like trying to burn down your entire house or burning down your entire house just because you think you might have spotted a rat in the attic. Okay, it's, it's something we've got to work through and think through, but uh, let's not take extreme measures. Let's listen and let's see if the Lord has something to teach us, even from that tough issue of the holy war that we see in the Bible. And then we looked at chapter 1 as well last week, and we saw that the People of God had been uh, promised God's power to go in and finish uh, the land, uh, possessing the land that God had given to them, and yet they didn't get there. They didn't really pursue it, and from their perspective, there were a lot of good reasons for it, but God actually said to them, nah, this isn't a matter of you could not, it's a matter of you would not. And God knows that they couldn't do it on their own power, but they could have certainly done it by relying upon him. And so we saw all of that last week, and that's a lead into what we'll see this week, which is that the, the people of God go a, a step even further uh, downhill, if you will, this week by uh, drinking, beginning to drink a sort of deadly cocktail, a mixture of outward professed faith in the things of God and in who God is, together with, uh, really, the deities around them, the idols that they find surrounding them that they're really finding hope in. And we're going to see that for the people of God, just like for us, when we do that, the aftertaste is pretty bitter, and yet there's hope. There's hope through the pathway of repentance, renewal, and redemption. That's what we want to take a look at today in our passage in the book of Judges uh, starting at verse uh, 6, we already read Judges 2, 1 through 5 in our call to confession this morning. So just read along with me as I uh, read aloud uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. 
when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So this is kind of zooming back, giving us the big picture. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath, Heres, and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And then listen to this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers. And they brought them out of who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. But then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way which their fathers had walked, and they obeyed the commandments, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their father did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that the spiritual realities taught by uh, this passage today would be crystal clear to us. And, Lord, that you'd do a work of repentance, renewal, and redemption as we receive your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, fun facts to know and tell. I'm nearsighted. And as those of you who maybe have some vision limitations can probably resonate with, I'm all right while well, I got my contacts in, or of course my glasses on, and especially in the daytime. But you put me in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping, no contacts in, glasses on the nightstand, dark in the room, and it gets a little dicey. 
As we discovered about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, one evening I woke up. This was two or three in the morning. I had to go take care of necessities. And, uh, and, and I, I normally keep a little bottle of water by the nightstand, especially in the wintertime. You know, the heat's circulating, get a little drier, get a little parched. Might have to wake up and get a sip of water. Well, on my way to the bathroom, I noticed that uh, on my nightstand, I was cognizant enough to realize there was no bottle of water there. And so as I came back from the bathroom, fumbling my way along, I thought I remembered that Patience, my wife, had a bottle of water on her nightstand. Made my way over there. I was, I was particularly thirsty that night, particularly dry in the throat. So I opened that cap up, tipped that bottle back, and, and took an unusually big gulp. And as that gulp was going down my throat, too late for me to do anything to expel that gulp going down I realized an extreme burning sensation in my throat, and for a moment, I was terrified at what I had ingested. As you can imagine, the thoughts that went through my mind immediately, I realized what I was drinking was not water, and I I know the myriad of various beauty products that the ladies like to have to uh, remove 30 years from their appearance, and I realized that I may have just ingested one and taken my last 30 years off. I nudged patience pretty hard, woke her up immediately. She flipped on the light, and we looked, and there in my hand was a full container of hydrogen peroxide. Now, we figured out pretty quickly that that stuff won't kill you. It will clean you out pretty good. Very good at cleaning you out. In fact, I could have probably remarketed the product as a sort of infomercial, uh, healthy cleansing sort of sort of thing. But I'll tell you, tell you what, when it goes down your throat, when it hits your lips, it burns like you wouldn't believe. And for a moment, I thought I had drank my last drink of anything. It's interesting when we look at our passage today. And we look at the people of God as they are beginning to drink, if you will, a a deadly, a truly deadly cocktail. And it's one that they don't immediately recognize the, the burn of. At least I had the advantage of sort of instantly realizing I had done something that was harmful. Theirs is kind of a slow burn and its effect upon them. Their deadly uh, mixture, as I said a minute ago, is a combination, this drink they're drinking is a combination of outwardly aligning with the things of God, the people of God, the commitments of God's people and relationship with him. And on the other hand, running after all the idols, all the gods of the people around them and thinking that by drinking that in, They will somehow quench their thirst. Here's the awesome thing, though, as our as our passage shows, is that God in the midst of that, as they come to repentance and we're kind of given here a map of what's going to happen over and over again in judges. But as the people come to a place of repentance, God brings renewal and he does that through redemption, through somebody, a judge, a savior, a rescuer. Who enters into their life. 
Now, if you want to follow along with me in your worship guide, you can. In fact, we're going to look at a list of some some pretty challenging things, but really helpful things in, in our lives where we see idols at work in a minute. So even if you don't normally look to that section, of your worship guide, you might want to this week. And then there's also a little uh, page in the very back of it that shows a little bit of this cycle that we see described. And how drinking that deadly cocktail becomes a a constant pattern for the people of God. And the need for rescue and renewal and redemption is at every turn. As we think about uh, this and sort of come out of the gate, the interesting thing for us is probably that, you know, throughout the world, if we look around, most people across the world do believe in some kind of spiritual reality. Most folks do there's there's a few out there there's a percentage that don't and maybe they're a vocal percentage but most people believe in some kind of spiritual reality so you know that's that's something we can look at and say there's some evidence of god's image imprinted upon humanity and yet when we look at the scope of humanity our lives and the world around us we realize that the default position the default setting it seems to be is for that image to be kind of tainted Painted in a way that we like to bring in all sorts of little gods. And you don't have to adhere to the sort of ancient Roman deities and ancient Greek deities that have been sort of repopularized. The recent Clash of the Titans movie or kiddos who are watching the Percy Jackson series are sort of catching on to all of that and reading those books. You don't have to, to do that. It, it's, it's always been there. Any culture where there's not this outside revelation from God speaking about who God is, is going to run to all sorts of idols for hope, for life, for power, for security. And so we see that in God's people in the scriptures right off the bat. That's why in chapter 2, the first part, and uh, Paul Johnson read it earlier in our worship service today, uh, God reminds the people, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 2, I brought you up from Egypt. Brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So God's a God's a God who's bringing them up. He's bringing them into a special place. And he's also a God who keeps his promise, that makes promises and keeps them. And yet we see right off the bat that they've turned away from him. And he tells them that these idols are going to become a thorn and a snare for them in their lives. So what I want us to talk about today and consider is where's that happening in our lives? Where are we doing the same kind of thing? The scriptures are meant to teach us and equip us. So where's that playing out? Let's talk about the nature of the idols that we face. You know, idols, it's interesting, are always part of the created order. Now, people in various uh, religions where they have actual statues and idols they make, they're crafting those out of something, metal or wood or something within the created order. And that thing in itself is not bad. Metal's not bad. Wood's not bad. But when it becomes a replacement for God, a substitute for relating to God, finding our joy, our delight, our strength in Him, then it can be deadly. For the people in the Old Testament, it's these Baals. We're going to hear a lot about them in the next couple of weeks. These Ashtoreths were the particular ones that aggravated them. We're going to go through a list in just a second here of some different idols that we wrestle with. And what I've come to find over the years in my own life and talking with people as a pastor is that a lot of us probably have three or four of these that are prevalent. And, and, and they might not be the same three or four that the person sitting next to us or the person across the pew 
has in their life. They're going to be a little bit different for each person. Those ones that are particularly drawing our worship away from God. And probably they shift a little bit. The ones you're wrestling with, if you're in your mid-40s now that you're wrestling with when you were 20, are probably different. They've probably shifted a little bit as well. But at any rate, an idol is anything that we add to God as a requirement for being happy. That's what an idol is in the scriptures. Anything we add to God is a requirement for being happy. It's anything we add to Jesus as a requirement for having a meaningful life. So we look at it and we're honest. There's all kinds of things that work as idols for us. I put a list for you taken from a study by a pastor named Tim Keller that I think is really helpful. It's in your worship guide. I'm just going to walk down through these. I know it'll be challenging for, for all of us, but let's think about these and pray about how these are influencing our lives and how we're in need of repentance, renewal, and redemption in these areas. He talks about the fact that power is certainly an idol for us. And It operates in this mentality, each one of these, that life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm going to be able to have influence or power with others. Approval. Approval is a big one for a lot of us as well. That works as a substitute deity. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by folks in general or maybe by a particular person that you really feel like you need to have the approval of. Comfort. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular quality of life or experience this particular feeling. And we could maybe wrap in with this some of our substance addictions that we wrestle with, uh, sexual addictions that we wrestle with. Those things are part, really, of comfort. Image. I've talked about this before, but this is one that's really big in our culture. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular look or appear a certain way. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Control. Think about this. Maybe this is one in your life. Life's only going to have meaning. It's only going to have worth for me if I can control the situations, maybe in my family, maybe in my personal life, maybe in my workplace. That's how I have hope, have security in life. Here's an interesting one, kind of a curveball, helping. Doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? We said all of these things are good things in and of themselves. Helping, but when it becomes an idol, then it says life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent upon me and need me. Makes me makes me feel uh, significant and valued in the place of God being my source of significance and value. Independence, life only has meaning. I only have value if I'm completely independent. It's kind of the opposite of the helping one. If I can just cut loose and, and not have any responsibilities, then that's what's going to give me a sense of meaning and purpose. Life only has meaning if I achieve, if I'm productive in my accomplishments, if I have material possessions that I'm accumulating or that I'm seeking to accumulate. Legalism, here's another one. Life only has meaning. This is a kind of a curveball too. I only have worth if I'm adhering perfectly to the religious rules or the moral standards that have been provided for me. Kind of a, hard one to decipher because, wait a minute, pastor, I thought it was a good thing for me to seek to obey God. Well, it's it's a great thing for us to do that. If we're doing it because we realize that God's made us and given us good commands for how we're supposed to live and we're responding to his grace and mercy and saving us, fantastic. Even being diligent and precise about those things is, is not a bad thing. 
But if the diligence and precision with our, our, our moral code, our legal code is really centered on us, and I got to check this list off, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do, if I can check that list off and feel good about myself, where, who's the God? The God in that situation is the checklist, not the one who's made us and given us his commands. Race, culture, politics, I only have meaning, I only have worth if my race, my culture, my political group are prospering. Turn on your favorite cable news channel and see how you respond in your heart. (laughs) And you will see evidence, probably many of us, myself included, to that one at work. Family. Here's another odd one, but is absolutely the case. Family life only has meaning. I only have worth. If things are working the way I want them to with my spouse, with my kids, with my parents, that, that they're either happy with me or I'm happy with them or they're fulfilling. And there's another one there listed suffering. This is kind of an odd one as well. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm suffering, if I'm going through some difficult time, because then Instead of Christ being my righteousness, I can feel like I'm paying for the mistakes I made. And if I'm paying for them, then I can feel like things are kind of rectified. I don't really have to depend on God's forgiveness. Convicting, huh? Say, Pastor, you could keep that list for another couple of months, Pastor, and not bring that one back out. We don't want to see that necessarily again. The point is this. All of us have hearts that run to something, someone other than God in order to find our fulfillment. And it's actually helpful for for us, just like going to the doctor. Nobody wants to necessarily get the diagnosis, but if you've got something wrong, got a serious illness, to go to the doctor and get that diagnosis and begin to be able to find where the cure is, is absolutely necessary. We're so thankful for that. That's what this is, a little diagnosis for us of our spiritual Sickness that we all have. Well, what are the consequences of these idols? Let's talk through that a little bit. So we're going to dig dig one level further. Let me go one level further, and then we'll bring ourselves, or the Lord will bring us up out of there with the promise of renewal and and redemption. We'll look at it at the last few moments of our sermon. But take a look back with me at verse uh, 4 of Judges 2 again. It says, so now I say, I do not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. It's an interesting statement. Thorns in your side and a snare to you. Think about what those two things do. What, what's a thorn do? It pokes you, right? Yeah, right. Pokes you, sticks you, makes you uncomfortable. It hurts you in some way. So. That's an interesting way to think about these idols that often look so appealing to us, so delightful to us, seem to offer the promise of relief or comfort or power or approval or you name it. They're actually poking us. They're actually damaging us, the Lord says. And then they're not just something that kind of damages us, harms us, but they're a snare. You know what a snare is? It's just a trap. It's a way to catch something if you watch those little alaska hunter shows that are all on tv on like 18 channels right now you know they're out there setting snares out to catch some sort of wild animal they capture you and hold you think about some of these things we just talked about and i'm not going to go back through all of them but think about just let's take materialism for example it's one that we all 
deal with. We live in a culture of great prosperity. And so it's so easy to get drawn into that in varieties of ways. And it doesn't really matter whether your response to it is to accumulate a lot and kind of stock it away. That's sort of the way materialism works in your life. Or on the flip side, to run after so much stuff and accumulating the house, the cars, you name it, the new gadgets, that you have nothing and, in fact, have you know, debtors and creditors knocking on your door. Either way, it's interesting how it's a snare, it's a thorn. Uh, think about it for a minute. These things seem to promise to give us life, accumulation or possession. They're going to give us life. But, in fact, what do they do? They poke us constantly because you've got to keep up with them. You've got to maintain them. Or maybe if it's just a, a money socked away in a nest egg, you've got to guard it. You've got to watch the stock market each day, and your mind is fixated on that, and you're distracted from really who the Lord is because those things become the focus and the attention. It's a little bit like Gollum, you remember, in The Lord of the Rings? He's got his little ring, and he's, my precious, you know? That's how we begin to, to think about it. And it's a trap for us. It catches us that way. Uh, Think about how the issues of image and beauty in our culture are like that as well. If you if you have some of that, if you're able to present an image as being capable or or whatever, strong or you're uh, maybe beautiful, have an appearance about you that you can present, you you start to bank on that. And then you become concerned when any of it's uh, going away. And anybody that's over age 25, you know, you definitely see those physical beauty and so forth starts to fade, starts to drift to the back. And you want to possess it. You want to keep a hold of it. It entraps you worry and concern about appearance and how we look. And then, of course, it's a it's something that that pokes us as well, especially for the ladies. You know, flip open any particular uh, magazine that's out there on the magazine rack that's been airbrushed ad nauseum to make the person look the way they have. And yet that image becomes something you've got to emulate. You've got to have it. It, it causes you damage. It, it wounds, even though the propensity is to chase after it as hope and life. When you think about uh, the, the milieu of our culture and the the, the tendency of our culture to pursue sexual temptation for young people in here, not yet uh, married at a place of being married in your life. What a what a difficult thing to actually believe God's word that that uh, idol of thinking you can find hope, you can find joy in that experience outside of God's context for it to really believe that that's uh, that's an idol. That's something that's going to damage and ensnare us for for those that are maybe in a, a mar- situation of being married to think that, hey, maybe for ladies, maybe that guy in the neighborhood or, or gals, guys, maybe that gal down the hallway at work can somehow bring fulfillment or the myriad of things on the TV or the Internet that seem to promise life, seem to promise joy. It's interesting. I don't recommend uh, watching this movie. I did not see it. I just read about it. But it's fascinating to me that Hollywood, of all places, made a movie, I think it was last year, the year before, that was just entitled Shame. And that guy, uh, Michael Fassbender, was in it. And he's been in a couple of cool movies. So I had read something about it. And the whole theme of the movie, as I understand from reading a little bit about it, is about how this guy, and even, even Hollywood is realizing this, even the larger culture, he's trapped in a web of things that he's pursuing through intimacy outside of marriage that aren't glorifying to God, and they're, they're killing him. They're bringing nothing but... Shame to him. We can think through all of these things 
And I encourage you to, on those areas where you kind of checked off on that list I had, think for a moment. Ask God to give you insight. Where are those areas really a thorn to me and really a snare? Because if we can identify it, if we can realize it's hydrogen peroxide, it's not water, (laughs) it'll help us, right? We can look at it and see it for what it is and therefore be able to turn our attention to the Lord that much better. Well, last thing I want to talk about, and we've just got a minute or two to consider it is what I put in your worship guide is the stages of renewal. I call them the stages of redemption. And I just want you to see this again. It's in that little diagram in the back of your worship guide where it shows this circle and the pattern of God's people. And really what I want us to see is just, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. If we feel like we're wrestling with this and have to come regularly to a place, as as, uh, Paul Johnson said earlier in our confession time of acknowledging that we've fallen short, acknowledging we've chased idols, and then asking God to forgive us and remind us of his grace and strengthen us to walk in a different pathway. That's the same thing we see throughout the scriptures. We see it here starting in verse 10 of uh, Judges chapter 2. It's interesting here. It just says there arose another generation after this other generation of Joshua who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What does that mean? This is not uh, Alzheimer's. They, they haven't completely forgotten what happened. Surely somebody told them what, what's happened is they've, they've pushed it out of their minds. They don't want to know it. They don't want to remember those wonderful things that the, God, that the Lord has done for us. But that's a, a hint at how we can begin to kind of turn this cycle around. One of the things is just to remember Remember those things that God has done for you. Remember the goodness of the places in your life where you kind of begun to learn to walk with him and realize the blessing that comes with that. Camp out on that. Lay hold of that. Verses 14 and 15, it goes on and tells us, so they've forgotten. That's the kind of their first step. Verses 14 and 15, it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered. I always like it when the Bible does stuff like that. Plunderers who happen to plunder. Uh, they, they came in and there were consequences. The thorns and the snares set in and they began to feel it. And that's what happens to us some places too. A lot of times our idols will bring a lot of benefit for us for a little while, right? They're good for the short run. And then all of a sudden something happens, some situation occurs, and things come crashing down. And we realize that thing is not going to be able to sustain the amount of hope that I have put into it. Verse 14 and verse 15 talks about that. So the people feel that oppression. And then uh, look with me at the next couple of verses, verse 16 uh, down through verse 18 and so forth. 18 in particular is a good one. It says in the very last uh, sentence there, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. It's not a bad thing to groan at some places in our life and say, Lord, I, I have gotten off a track. I am way out of whack. Please come and rescue me. In fact, that's exactly where the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be in a place of recognizing we need his mercy. We need his strength. And then lastly, we see that this renewal comes in. This redemption comes through one of these judges. Each time the judges are sent. And we know the cycle is going to continue. But the judges come and rescue the people. Just as we see. In the New Testament, the fulfillment of all these judges in the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and brings rescue for us. One last thing that I was thinking about as I was 
thinking through this idea of idols. A few years ago, I don't remember where I read this or learned this, but it was interesting to learn how uh, the Secret Service, and you know the Secret Service guard the president, but they also are involved in uh, counterfeit currency. They investigate counterfeit currency. And I was intrigued to learn how they train, or at least one main way they train Secret Service agents to identify counterfeit currency, to identify false Y'all ever heard this? The, the way they do it is they set before them an authentic U.S. bill. And, and they, they have them study it. They have them look at it. They spend time analyzing it. They memorize the things that are on it. They learn it. They know it. They understand it. They, they're gazing upon it. And so then at least one way they can realize the counterfeit is just they look at it and say, that is not this. That's not the real thing. What a privilege we have through the scriptures, through the encouragement of friends who share with us about who the Lord is through our church family to be able to dwell upon, to be able to look and see who is God. What does the scripture tell us about who he is and to study that and analyze that, not just for its own sake to to know God, but to, to be able to realize the contrast between that and these things that we run after in place of God. What a blessing that the Lord provides for us. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us who he is. Let's begin to, to do that. Let's begin to dwell on him. Let's begin to look at him as the one who, as we repent, brings renewal and brings redemption into our lives, ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you we thank you for the ultimate uh, judge, the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have uh, looked at these idols and our propensity to run to them, it seems uh, in countless ways. Uh, Father, we just really need a reminder today of the fact that we have the righteousness of Christ if our hope is in him. We've been declared and redeemed in your sight, and we are uplifted because of that. And, Lord, we pray that that would, uh, Lord, be something that strengthens us to then, Lord, break free in places in our life from this cycle of idolatry. That we wouldn't be content to continue to live this way, but you'd bring newness, you'd bring refreshing. And, Lord, ultimately that we would do that. Not just so we steer clear of these thorns and snares, but, Lord, that we would be greater in greater degrees drawn up into you, realizing our joy, the purpose we were made for of worshiping and seeking you. Help us in that way, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.